All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We kick off this morning with BC's best election coverage, and let's jump into that right now. My first guest is Sonia know, leader of the BC Green Party. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Good morning. Good morning, Mike. Always happy to be here. I, th- I appreciate you taking the time. Lots of eye-catching promises out there for voters from all the major parties, the Green Party included, and you released some key promises this week. Let's uh, dig into some of those. You Let's start with the child care promise. You promise, is this free child care? Really? Free? Yeah, free early childhood education. So if we recognize right. how important early childhood education is to a child's life, to their learning success, but also to society. Economists have been very clear that the most important investment we can make for COVID recovery, for our economic recovery, is early childhood education. So let's recognize that it's part of our education system. Have it be part of our public education system. And three-year-olds and four-year-olds would have 25 hours of early childhood education, not as something that parents can afford, but as something that parents can expect as part of their child's public education. Right. Okay. So this would be part of the education system then, right? Would you, would you, would you like to see like childcare expanded as well? Absolutely. So we've talked about expanding childcare um, to parents with under threes, um, making that free uh, as well as ensuring that there is uh, accessible childcare spaces beyond the 25 hours a week needed uh, for early childhood education. It's, it's, a, it's an essential part, and, and we have to invest in our youngest people in our society. We've long overlooked the importance of investing in youth, in education, and particularly in early childhood education. Okay, what would you say to the people out there who are saying, like, these promises that are flying around are just unrealistic, they're over the top, the NDP is promising basically free money, the Liberals are promising to scrap the provincial sales tax, you guys are talking about a four-day work week, which we'll get into, child care. Uh, mm-hmm. Where does this all come from? Where does it end? How do we afford this? Mm-hmm. It's an important question, and, and we we are working on, on all of our costing. Uh, and here's the here's the point is that it's the job of any political party and a political leader, particularly during an election, but I would say all the time, to identify where they think their vision is for the future of of the province. And for me, it's really clear. It is how do we ensure that B.C. is organized, is governed, that the services and infrastructure is there so that we can have the healthiest uh, province where well-being uh, resiliency and sustainability are are the key outcomes for the people and for the, the regions and neighborhoods and communities in this province. And so we can measure what we see in our in our platform pieces and our proposals. How sure. does that get us towards a healthier province? But how, what, how do we pay for it, though? I mean, have you guys, you mentioned that you're still costing this thing out. So have, mm-hmm. you, calc- have you calculated how much the deficit would be if your plan was implemented? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the reality we're in because of COVID-19. There is going to be deficit spending um, and deficit budgets. Uh, we always argued that you should have a balanced budget over four years, um, but that you have flexibility within those four years uh, for some deficits so that you can start doing longer-term planning. And I think this is what we need to recognize, is when governments are doing longer-term planning, 
then they can be sure that those investments, and particularly at a time like this when we have to be mindful, but also have to recognize that we need to invest, uh, that those investments are leading us to where we want to go and that we're measuring those outcomes. Is this getting us closer to the outcomes we want? Are we more resilient? Are we more sustainable? Do we have a stronger small and medium-sized business sector? Have we increased our manufacturing sector? Have we moved towards cleaner energy? All of these things make us uh, ensure that there's more health and well-being. So it's that point of where do we want to get to? Four-day work week. Let's talk about that. This is an idea that you've broached before. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people would love the idea of working just four days a week. Are you kidding me? A long weekend every weekend? That would be fantastic. Although you've taken some heat from it for over this idea, notably from the former Green Party leader, Andrew Weaver, who just thinks it's unrealistic. How would you accomplish this, a four-day work week? There's been some great research and studies done on companies that have done this. And so all over the world, Microsoft, Japan, there's a company called ICE, uh, several hundred employees in Ireland. There's a book by Alex Young Tang uh, called Shorter, where he's looked at 100 companies around the world that have done this. Uh, right here in BC, we have the Suzuki Foundation, which has had a four-day week since 1990. So what is found in all of this research is that if it's done well, productivity, revenues, profits increase. Uh, employee happiness retention increase. Six days basically disappear. Um, and people are working uh, harder for their company, getting more output because of that three-day weekend. And I was on a call a couple months ago with uh, the CEO and chair of this company in Ireland, uh, several hundred employees. Their motto is home of the three-day weekend. And they they are the biggest cheerleaders for this because it has vastly improved the outcomes for their company, but they also have the happiest and healthiest employees. So again, if we're looking at health and well-being, let's look at what the evidence and the research tells us about how we can achieve that. And as you say, like everybody's going to have a a long weekend this weekend, Thanksgiving, and we all know that that extra day gives us that capacity to actually get rejuvenated, excited about going back to work, ready to give it our all. If we had that every week, we could be really uh, we could be really seeing a shift. All right. Speaking to BC Green Party leader Sonia Firstenau, uh let me ask you about your competitors and some of the other promises that are flying out there, and they're mm-hmm. thick and furious here. Let me play this for you. John Horgan, the NDP leader, this week with his promise of $1,000 per family, free money for people. Here's Horgan. Our plan provides a one-time $1,000 recovery benefit to help families and $500 for individuals. Okay, he says he's not buying votes. He said that straight up the other day, but I learned a long time ago, anytime a politician says we're not buying your vote, they basically are buying your vote. Uh, Your thoughts on $1,000 per family? So, you know, this is a problem because it it engenders a lack of trust in my mind. If this was money that had already been set aside as part of the COVID recovery, then that should be made clear. If it's not, um, that kind of investment, that kind of funding could go so far if it was invested in a way that, that really... Focused on focused on services on infrastructure that could help everybody in the province, and and you know I remember back to Ralph Klein doing this. We had in Alberta when I was growing up, you know the uh, the funds that were put away for the future, uh, and then Ralph Klein comes in and says everybody gets four hundred dollars if they vote for me, and we see the evaporation 
of services and infrastructure that comes from that kind of uh, that kind of approach to politics. Look, we need to be talking about the future. We need to be talking about what do we owe to youth? How are we going to ensure that we have a safe future? And what I'd like John Horgan to do is stop giving billions of dollars away to the fracking industry and the LNG industry and start focusing on how we're going to transition our economy to a clean economy. Last question for you. Next week is the televised leaders debate. Can you tell me what your approach will be there? And do you consider that a key opportunity for you? Of course, uh, the debate is something that I'm very much looking forward to. My approach is going to be what my approach has been through this entire election campaign, which is uh, focus on the vision that I have for this province. Tell the truth. Uh, ensure that voters know that they have a, a, a real alternative to the kind of old school politics that has dominated this province for so long, and that there is a party that is evidence-based, that is forward-looking, uh, that recognizes our need to get away from fracking and fossil fuels and, and start moving towards the, the future that we all want for our, for our province, uh, and that is the BC Green Party. Okay. Thank you for coming on this morning. Thanks, Mike. Always a pleasure. All right. Promise is flying fast and furious in this election campaign now. And voters are used to being promised the moon at election time. But this election, I think, is different. You're being promised the moon, the stars, the sun, the planets, all the dark matter in the universe. I mean, it just seems like any promise is not too over the top. There is nothing that's too much. Free money, free childcare, four-day work week, no sales tax. Where does it go next? Free pony for every kid in British Columbia. That could be next. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll-free on yourself. Tony and Burnaby. Hi, Tony. Good morning, Mike. Hi. You know, one thing I find the most misleading about this uh, campaign right now is Mr. Horrigan, and when he keeps mentioning the guy who's buying the yacht and getting the... Uh, the PST back on it. You know, he neglects to mention all the people with less income who are buying something every day that always has PST on it. And they're the ones that are benefiting the most. Yeah. You know, I find it so misleading and dishonest that he's not even mentioning that, and he's pinning one class against another on purpose. Yeah, no, there are lots of other items that have provincial sales tax that would be eliminated like the ndp right now under the liberals plan the ndp are saying well is this really going to help because you're already sales tax exempt on food and prescription drugs and kids clothes but there are so many other like just daily staples of of life go, whether it's go you know buy something at home depot or go buy something at staples or even toilet paper at safe toilet paper diapers you know, you know nat- your a natural gas bill PST on it and, sure. and that's what he's that's where the misleading part is on his behalf and and that's what i really don't like thanks a lot for the call no if you go down the list of stuff that you'd save on under that liberal plan i mean you know your hydro bill your natural gas bill um cleaning supplies toothpaste dentures garden supplies toys stationery garbage bags hardware and then you think about the stimulus impact for business where they would have no pst and construction materials that kind of thing it's a very intriguing promise i'm not sure it's going to work for the liberals though because you take a look at the polls uh, since this a promise was made by wilkinson the needle has not moved here so i know i talked to some liberal insiders yesterday who said that they're they're worried that this is not working for them carly and white rock hi carly Hi, morning. So typically, my husband and I have always been uh, provincially a liberal voter. We both 
owner-owned companies and would be considered, um, you know, middle, upper class. So I can't believe I'm saying this, but this election, both of our votes are going to go to the Green Party, to Sonia. Um, I really honestly believe if you just take a step back, you'll see that the other two parties are offering short-term solutions. And when you look at Sonia and her platform, everything she speaks to is founded in science, and data and a long-term vision with just pure common sense to what she says. And uh, I think that that's really where we could benefit from, a long-term common sense, scientific-based plan. Thank you for the call. I think she has surprised some people with her effectiveness as, as this new leader who's only been on the job a few weeks. And she's kind of a wild card in this election campaign. And I'll tell you what, next week in that televised leaders debate, who knows if she has a moment there, things could maybe turn around a little bit in this election campaign. I'll tell you what, she's the first party leader that I've heard in this election campaign even breathe, dare to say the words balanced budget which she just said to me, she talked about balancing the budget over four years. There's no way anyone's going to balance the budget in this province in four years, but she's the first one who even went there. I mean, with the liberals in the NDP, there's not even a hint of balancing the budget at any time, anytime soon. John and Whistler. Hiya, John. Yeah, I, I, I just like to echo the previous caller. I think, uh, I think Sonia is, uh, uh, priorities are are based focused on on the future and we're we're only just building an economic and environmental mess with the policies of both the liberal and the ndp who basically uh, have the same priorities that we had in the 50s and 60s which we know now with over 400 parts per million carbon that's just not working and we're building um incredible deficits and debts and our children we're just kicking the can down the road to them and i really i really like what i hear from the green party very responsible i mean they may fail at balancing the budget but at least they say they're going to they make it a priority to try she she mentioned it thank you for the call i have not heard anything about balancing the budget from horgan or wilkinson this used to be a, a political paradigm in this province we were one of the few if not the only provinces in the whole country that actually had a balanced budget before the pandemic hit that has gone completely out the window i'll tell you what though one of the reasons that horgan called this election when he did was to catch this green party unprepared and i think that he accomplished that they have not they're not running a full slate of candidates they really were running from behind to start this thing but i don't know first to know has impressed me a bit we will see how she does in that debate next week thanks a lot for all your calls if you did not get through phone me on the buzz line leave me a voicemail there and tell me what you think 604-331-BUZZ all right welcome back to the show we have closely followed the situation with the homeless encampment at strathcona park in east van there are still hundreds of tents and campers in the park the largest homeless camp in canada it is a big day on this file vancouver city council has a special meeting on this today to consider emergency housing options they include sanctioned tent cities on municipally owned land. Let's go live now to Strathcona Park and check in with Chrissy Brett. She is a spokesperson there for the tent city that they call Camp KT. Chrissy, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Why do you call it Camp KT? 
Well, I think if you look at Kennedy Stewart and Justin Trudeau, who have been absent within this homeless crisis, that it's our invitation to both of them that they need to address homeless people with more respect than federal prisoners here in Canada. And you just have to take a look at the provincial current guidelines that are being created as recommendations for um, encampments or people who are sheltering in place in um, municipal parks. And okay. currently we've got um, a province of led by John Horgan, who has been quoted when homeless people were in his um, riding, that homeless people don't belong in his neighborhood. And the current recommended guidelines are 10 feet by 10 feet um, tent space, which is 100 square feet. And current prison guidelines give prisoners 16 and a half feet by 16 and a half feet jail cells, All right. which is 269 feet. So okay. I think both the mayor and the federal government need to come to the table to ensure that the current recommended price costs that people like Mayor Kennedy are proposing would be $9.49 per day for a homeless person in an encampment managed by the city. And currently, in a federal prison, it costs Mm. people $130 to $254 per day. So okay, I Camp think- Camp KT stands for Camp Kennedy Trudeau. Okay, Chrissy, let me ask you about the, the, the City Hall meeting that's happening today and the idea of sanctioned tent cities on municipally owned land. I'm not sure the city is going to go for this, but it is on the agenda today. What do you think of that idea? I think if um, Canada or municipalities would like to make space where people could shelter in place that is not a park. It would maybe stop the current division between and war against homeless and creating homeless hate by only making municipal parks as the only place to shelter in place and I think that if any level of Canada would like to provide a Canadian-style refugee encampment that allows for people to get potable drinking water, bathrooms, um, then electricity, and lastly, showers, that it would be way more than currently is offered to homeless people where they have absolutely no protection to be able right. to shelter in place 24 hours a day. Okay. And the current proposal is that there be no allowances for things like heat. So if they were to actually create something, that that would be something that would be great for Canadians. But Indigenous people are from sovereign nations. And that I think urban reserves should be something that would be piloted that would be allowed um, to have matriarch-led, governed through Indigenous lands, resident and peer-involved communities. Let me ask... With our current 175 volunteers... Let me me ask you this... Let me ask... Let me ask you this, Chrissy. Chrissy, just in the interest of time here, I, I don't like to interrupt you, but just to get my, get some more questions in. Uh, I'm looking at the list of demands that the tent city residents issued a while ago. It calls for 10,000 units of social housing every year, units at least 600 square feet, 
uh, health care and safe supply for everyone. We demand a safe, high, a safe, high-quality supply of opiates, stimulants, tobacco, alcohol, feminine hygiene products, pre- pregnancy tests, birth control, diapers, baby wipes, hormone replacement uh, theory, uh, prescription drugs, uh, $2,000 a month in welfare and pension benefits, COVID-19 testing. I mean, I'm looking at these demands, and I don't know, it doesn't appear realistic. Well, I think that is not realistic is this current system that criminalizes impoverished people through a culture of prohibition that creates a lot of these problems. And if you look at countries that have concentrated on decriminalization, detox, and treatment in a more long-term attached to housing options, that those countries have been successful in combating the issues that come through drug prohibition. And uh, currently in Canada, the statistic to get through treatment successfully is about five times that you have to repeat treatment. And when you look at the countries that have successful treatment programs, they're about two years long, that include first, second, and third stage housing. And we currently have a culture of saying that we need housing first, and there's absolutely no wraparound services, counseling, or support that are put into the housing. Let me uh, see more violent crimes happening in SROs and more deaths than in communities that have been created by homeless people in encampments where people die less, and there's quite often way less violent crimes than there currently is in SRO. Let me ask you, Chrissy, I'm speaking to Chrissy Brett. She's a spokesperson for the campers in Strathcona Park. I'm looking at um, some of the fundraisers that you guys have done. I'm looking at several GoFundMe pages for uh, residents of the park. There is a a shower trailer fund that has raised almost $15,000. There is a a laundry fund that has raised almost $10,000. There's a health and wellness tent city fund that's raised almost $12,000. You've got, there's another one that's raised almost $35,000 for emergency funds. You know, you got tens of thousands of dollars here. I think everyone could agree that the situation in the park is not adequate, but I'm just wondering where is, where is all this money gone to? Because as far as I know, there's what, there's only like a couple of, sh- how many shower stalls and porta potties you got down there? We have absolutely no shower stalls, which is why how, we're doing how come you haven't, how come you haven't spent the, spent this trailer. month? What's going on with that? all that money? You got like tens it's, of thousands of dollars. We got a quote that it would cost $25,000 to bring in a shower trailer and man it with um, pure security and have it hooked up to city or have the ones with the portable tanks attached to them and that it would cost about $25,000. We're currently at 15000 and it will continue to stay there until 25000 is raised, where if the province would just pass on the shower and bathroom trailers that were in the Victoria Courthouse tent city that were provided at the uh, Camp Namigans, which became the Namigans Nations in Saanich, and that have been provided at other tent cities, that those costs, would be something that they could actually attribute to okay. a cost in some city. Last question for you. Uh, 
we know there are hundreds of people down at, at the park. I, I've heard some criticism that not everyone who lives in the park is genuinely homeless, that maybe they have homes elsewhere. And that would you, would you acknowledge that part of the tent city is not only a homeless encampment, but it's also a political statement that you're making? Would, would you agree? No, I think that every encampment and Canadian that has experienced homelessness can agree that one size does not fit all. And some of the housing decampment processes hasn't acknowledged that people should have a right to um, COVID bubbles and families that they're allowed access to. So... My cousin, who has a single SRO's girlfriend, was put back out on the street when the visitor allowances were completely cancelled in SRO's, and he wasn't about to have her sleep on the sidewalk underneath his SRO while he slept in bed. So those are people that have had a need to ensure that their partners are safe, that they have somewhere to go, that those are things that happen when we are currently in a fentanyl crisis where people are being encouraged not to use the loan. Then my cousin's girlfriend, when she was finally got given an SRO, died alone, using a loan with this no visitor policy where people aren't allowed up to their room. Okay, um, Chrissy... So- Chrissy, thank you. Thank you for being... I would challenge anyone to stay in one of the worst SROs that I won't even put my bags down because they are so infested with bugs. And so if Mayor Kennedy would like to spend one night in an SRO of my choice, then I would be willing to stay there one night if Kennedy Stewart was willing to stay one night in an SRO. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for coming on this morning. Thank you. Our plan provides a one-time $1,000 recovery benefit to help families and $500 for individuals. All right, BC's best election coverage now. That's NDP leader John Horgan, of course, promising $1,000 per family this week. By direct deposit to your bank account, Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson, he's promising another hospital in Surrey this afternoon. Oregon promised SkyTrain to Langley this morning. Green Party leader Sonia Furstenau, she was on the show earlier. She promised free childcare and a four-day work week. The promise palooza continues here. Let's talk about all of this now. Our candidates panel is assembled and ready to go. I got Peter Millibar on the line. He's the Liberal candidate in Kamloops, North Thompson. Peter, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Always good to be on. Appreciate it. Adam Olson is the Green Party candidate, Sandwich North in the Islands. Adam, thanks. Good afternoon. Hi, guys. Thank you, Adam. David Eby on the line. Of course, the NDP candidate, Vancouver Point Grey. David, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thank you, gentlemen, to all three of you. David Eby, let me go to you first. There's a lot of cynicism around this promise from uh, John Horgan to promise $1,000 per family direct deposited into your bank account. The liberals say you're just bribing people with their own money. How do you respond? Well, I think that it's ironic. I mean, the Liberals are out there saying that, uh, you know, the economy needs a kickstart, which is why they're getting rid of the PST. The difference between our two promises is pretty straightforward. If you don't have money to spend, you can't benefit from the B.C. Liberal commitment to get rid of the PST. But under our uh, commitment, uh, families will see that money coming in. They'll be using it 
It's income tested, so it doesn't go to everyone. It only goes to people uh, earning less than $125,000 as a family, uh, up to $175,000 as it, it gets ratcheted down. And those families will be using that money right away in our local economy. They'll be supporting local businesses, and it's going to get our economy kickstarted. The difference between our two approaches is not what's underlining it. We both believe the economy needs to be kickstarted because of COVID. But the approach, one is we recognize that there are a lot of families out there without money to spend. And the Liberals simply don't recognize that their PST cut only benefits people with money to spend. But especially as you spend more money, then you get more benefit from the BC Liberal problem. But if you're if you're a family making a hundred and seventy-five thousand bucks a year and you have not been impacted negatively by COVID nineteen, you've still had your job, you're still working all the way through this pandemic, why oh why would you need a government handout? Well, I agree. That's why it's cut off there. There is no benefit at that level. Yeah, but it's up to one hundred and seventy-five thousand. Okay, if you're making one hundred and seventy thousand bucks a year, why would you need money from the government? Well, I agree with that as well, Mike. That's why it's ratcheted down as you earn more income. Unlike okay. the BC Liberal promise, which actually benefits uh, the wealthiest people who have been the least affected the most. Uh, ours okay. is the opposite. All right, Peter Millibar, what do you think? Well, that's just patently false. Uh, every economist out there, and it's been well proven that as a percentage of your overall uh, discretionary income. Uh, the lower uh, income you have, the more impactful uh, a sales tax is. It's a regressive tax. Uh, for decades, the NDP have railed against uh, a regressive tax like a sales tax. And now, uh, because they didn't choose to do this, uh, they're suddenly saying it only benefits the rich. That's simply not the case. Uh, it'll impact people's cell phone bills in, in, in the interior here. It'll impact people going to get winter tires for their car, which is actually a necessity when you live in winter climates. It'll impact uh, a great many of everyday things that people purchase uh, in their daily lives. And so, uh, you know, frankly, the $1,000 for people could have easily been done had we actually convened the legislature on Monday as scheduled. And the NDP brought forward a proposal saying that uh, they felt there was a need uh, for the, uh, a special uh, expenditure of that $1,000 instantly going to people's bank accounts. This is nothing more than shameless uh, vote buying by the NDP. Uh, if people aren't employed, their income goes down, which means uh, their, their provincial income tax doesn't get paid uh, and collected, which means uh, those revenues drop too. We are trying okay. to make sure people stay employed, businesses stay healthy, and people have that money instantly back into their pockets to be able to generate through the economy while people stay employed. Let me get Adam Olson in here from the Green Party. Adam, what do you think? Well, as we talked about last week, Mike, uh, our position is that the BC Liberals, uh, seven, the, the PST uh, cut is uh, just an antiquated approach, proof that they are very much out of ideas and weren't able to generate any new ones over the last three and a half years. And, and uh, on the same, in the same breath, I'll say that I agree with Peter that the $1,000 handout to, to families, uh, I think you raised some very good points and questions to David, uh, is, a, is an attempt to... Uh, to, to lure people's votes with their own money. I, I agree with that. I think that, uh, I think both, yeah, I, I just think that it's kind of a gross attempt to try to convince people to, to vote for them with, uh, with money that they're going to borrow to, to, uh, to give it to them. Adam Olson, what are you hearing from businesses out there who are struggling through this pandemic and looking for help? Because I know there has been some complaints that aid has been delayed because of this election call. Your thoughts? Well, I think that that's exactly, you know, that's that's whole part and parcel to the point that we've been making all along. And that is that uh, small business owners, you know, that uh, David Eby talks about how small business owners need to have and, and families need to spend supporting small business owners. But 
they were sitting on for the entire summer, $1.5 billion that was proved, uh, approved last March. Uh, they could have been investing those in businesses. Uh, we, we talked yesterday about supporting businesses with rent. That's exactly what they've been asking for. The NDP sat on it, dragged their heels. Ta-da, here's an election. And by the way, here's this $1.5 billion that you've approved. And it's, it's part of our election fund now, apparently, for the BC NDP. Okay. So, you know, I think that we were promised that that money was going to roll out. And we are hearing that because there's no cabinet minister sitting to do their job to sign on the, on the dotted line, that money is, is being held back and businesses are being hurt by it. David Eby, what do you say to that? Well, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a bizarre reconstruction of history because I know Adam was sitting there and, and we were working together and deploying more than $5 billion of support to businesses and individuals across the province. So I'm going to be blunt. I have no idea what he's talking about. Uh, there was an additional $1.5 billion of new programs that uh, we announced, um, indeed, uh, shortly before the election. But he'll also know, because he's been in government, uh, that it takes some time to put these programs together. Public servants are working away. They have what they need to do the work. And uh, and we will have a decision within, uh, I guess now, uh, significantly less than 20 days. I think we're 17 okay. days. Uh, and a new government in place and, and a mandate for four years to get these things done, because that's the kind of recovery window that we need to, to recover from. Uh, this pandemic. And so these programs will continue to roll out, Mike. David Eby, let me ask you this. The NDP released your full election platform this week. I took a close look at it. It seemed to me to be fuzzy on the issues of taxation. Can you give an assurance to listeners right here, right now, that a re-elected NDP government would not raise taxes on British Columbians, no new taxes, under an NDP government, can you assure everyone of that? Well, you, you've heard the Premier, Mike. He's been really clear. And I, I think, actually, uh, perhaps this is one of those moments when all three parties are aligned on proper public policy. Um, this is not a time for additional taxes on British Columbians. This is a time for support for people who are struggling and investment in services that people depend on. And so you hear it from uh, economists, uh, very mainstream economists. You hear it from, uh, I think, all three parties. Uh, and we just have significantly different policy approaches to how we would implement okay. this, obviously. One favors the rich and well-connected, and one doesn't. And I'll leave you to guess which party is which. But the no new, No new taxes, though, right? We need to... This is not... It's not in our platform. There's no... Uh, and, and there's no additional revenue generation in our platform, and that's because this is not a time for new taxes. That's okay, right. well, we'll hold you to that if you win. What about mobility pricing? Would you bring in mobility pricing to, to pay for expanded transit? Well, you'll remember, of course, that, uh, that we were the party that got rid of tolls, and uh, not only that, that we uh, are um, delivering a solution to the Massey Tunnel to the people who live in uh, that part of the world that won't require tolls like the BC Liberal Bridge uh, did. Uh, proposal did. And so we are not the party that is um, taxing people for crossing bridges. We're the party that understands that families need that support to get to work. They need a way to get to, uh, to work. And also, obviously, we recognize that car-centric building is uh, is not the way forward, which is why you heard the Premier commit okay. in this newscast to sky train out to Langley so that but I'm not, can use transit and get out of their cars and get around. I'm not talking about tolls, though. I'm talking about mobility pricing. Would, would an NDP government bring in a mobility pricing 
There's no proposal that I'm aware of, Mike, around mobility pricing uh, or additional charges. In fact, we're reducing car insurance by 20% on May 1st, Okay, reducing costs for people who are reliant on their cars for uh, transportation. Okay, Peter Peter Millibar for the Liberals, are you, are you buying that? No, and frankly, um, there was not a $5 billion package plus $1.5 billion. It was a $5 billion total package. The NDP sat on the billion and a half dollars for, for businesses. When they announced it three days before the election, uh, a lot of it wouldn't even be spent until 2022. That doesn't help businesses that have gone out of business. That's why today we announced that we would uh, help businesses with uh, loan guarantees, that we would have a, a reduction, a, a removal of the 2% small business tax. Uh, so, I mean, David Eby's just either flat out doesn't know his facts or trying to be uh, very fast and loose with the facts. Um, the reality is, uh, I don't remember seeing the 23 increase and new taxes in the NDP platform last time either. So how we can trust them to say that they're not going to increase taxes? Uh, I mean, our proposal is to remove a tax in the short term to help stimulate the economy. And they're opposed to that because they don't understand how it works to actually reduce the tax. All they know how to do is add to the tax uh, burden of, of business and to individuals. All right, welcome back. It's our BC Elections panel. David Eby for the NDP, Peter Millibar for the Liberals, Adam Olson for the Green Party. Adam Olson, let me go to you. Um, can you tell me where you guys are at in this election campaign right now? When you listen to the NDP and the Liberals uh, panelists here duking it out, what is your message to voters? Would you say elect, a, elect another minority government? Is that what you'd like to see? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think yeah. that they continue to try to frame this as a as a two-party discussion, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, as, as David alluded to, we were working together uh, throughout the summer and over the past three and a half years, and, and actually until uh, Mr. Horgan decided to tear the house down around him and, and call the confidence and supply agreement name, uh, he, was, he was propping it up and talking about how productive it was. In fact, indeed, one of the other topics that we might get to today on ICBC was one in which, yeah. you know, I think that we worked very closely with, uh, with Minister Eby at the time, and and he did a, a tremendous job on it. And so I think that there is a, a need for more collaboration and more uh, productive uh, governance in our province, and that includes yeah. uh, diversity of voices, and the BC Greens have been very productive at that table. Okay, speaking of ICBC, let's have a quick listen to Liberal Leader Andrew Wilkinson here with one of his big promises this week to break up ICBC's monopoly in auto insurance. Here's Wilkinson. The way to get cheaper rates is to introduce competition for all forms of auto insurance in British Columbia. So today we're announcing that a BC Liberal government will remove the monopoly for ICBC. Okay, David Eby, you're the minister responsible for ICBC in the in the previous government. Your thoughts on this promise from the Liberals now? Sure, Mike. I mean, uh, classic to hear Peter Millibar talk about how the BC Liberals supposedly reduced taxes when they doubled MST and we delivered the largest middle class tax uh, cut in uh, BC history by getting rid of the MST and every class of income earner, except for the richest 1%, is now paying less tax in our province than when we took control. ICBC is just like that. You know, uh, here is the BC Liberals. They take a a money-making crown corporation that's delivering more affordable insurance. They turn it into a basket case, losing a billion dollars a year, uh, delivering double-digit rate increases for British Columbians. And now, you know, when we're just on the verge of delivering a 20% rate cut for drivers, effective May 1st, they say, we're going to reverse all of the changes that the NDP brought in, getting rid of the legal costs in the system. We're going to put the legal costs back in, uh, dividing the pool of drivers so that the private insurers take the most profitable drivers, that top quartile of drivers, the top 25% of drivers who are 
typically over the age of 45, and leaving younger drivers, everyone under the age of 35, with ICBC sharing more risk with fewer drivers, causing the rates to go up, something the private insurers acknowledge themselves, he's going to increase costs for everybody. And the crazy thing about it is that he's doing it suggesting it's actually going to reduce rates. Nobody, nobody except for the BC Liberals believes that this is going to reduce rates for people, just like nobody who had to pay the MSP believes that the Liberals actually decrease taxes in our province. All right, Peter Millibar for the Liberals. How do you respond to that? Well, first, let's be clear. They replaced the MSP with an employer's health tax. It's actually collecting more money now than the MSP used to collect. So they actually increased that tax. Um, But in regards to ICBC, under the BC Liberals uh, for the last years leading up uh, to the change of power, uh, increases were at around the rate of inflation. They're at 48% over the last three years under David Eby. ICBC's lost more money than they ever lost under uh, our our watch under David Eby this year. Um, And the reality is people want choice. People want uh, options. And that's simply what we are trying to provide. If ICBC is truly as, as... efficient and and well-run, as uh, David Eby is trying to suggest, they should have no problem competing, and people should want that product. Uh, but, but this is a case. You don't uh, have government um, uh, intervening in other areas as well. Uh, this was a, a system that was put in by the NDP way back in the day. Uh, it has run its course. It needs to have that competition to try to drive down those rates, to give people the options uh, to make sure that they make the choices that best fit their budgets with the companies that okay. they want to deal with. And if it's ICBC, so be it. David Eby, quick response here. It's nonsense to think that you can take the lowest risk drivers out of the pool from ICBC and give it to the private insurers, and then everybody else is somehow going to pay lower rates. Everybody knows it's false. The, the private insurers themselves said that uh, the youngest drivers are going to see 30% increases under that model. And I cannot understand why they would move to a model like Ontario's, where there's only one province with higher rates than us, and that's Ontario. They have a hybrid model, too. They have private insurers. And anybody that owns a strata unit, that owns a condo, that is dealing with a private insurance market in British Columbia will tell you, don't do it. Fix the public insurer. Gordon Campbell would have told you that. Uh, and, and I'll point out that in the majority of the years that ICBC existed, BC Liberal governments were in power, and they did not get rid of ICBC because they know that that will only deliver higher rates. It's a okay. political promise that will cost drivers more.